she stepped into the water, felt it rush inside her shoes and over her ankles, and worked her way downstream toward the river. In the distance she heard axes knocking into wood and smelled smoke from a stump fire, and the fact that the work of the plantation went on rhythmically, not missing a beat, in spite of her child's birth and possible death, reminded her once again of her own insignificance. When she came out of the water and labored toward the edge of the woods, she glanced behind her, and in the thin patina of snow frozen on the ground, she saw her own blood spore and knew it was almost her time. The barking of the dogs was louder now, but she no longer cared about either the dogs or the men who rode behind them. Her spore ended at the slough. Her story would end here, too. The child was another matter. But now she was too tired to think about any of it. She stood on the edge of the trees, the sunlight breaking on her face, and sat down heavily in the grass, the tops of her shoes dark with her blood. Through a red haze, she saw a man in a stovepipe hat and dirty white breeches ride over a hillock behind his dogs, two other mounted men behind him, their horses steaming in the sunshine. The dogs surrounded her, but they made no move against her person. The man in the stovepipe hat reined his horse and got down and looked at Sari, almost respectfully. You gave us quite a run. She did not reply. His name was Rufus Atkins, a slight, hard-bodied man whose skin even in winter had the color and texture of a blacksmith's leather apron. His hair was a blackish tan, long, combed straight back, and there were hollows in his cheeks that gave his face a certain fragility. But the cartilage around the jawbones was unnaturally dark, as though rubbed with blackened brick dust, knotted with attention his manner hid from others. A second man dismounted, this one blonde, his nose wind-burned, wearing a leather cap and canvas coat and a red-and-white checkered scarf tied around his throat. On his hip he carried a small flintlock pistol, that had three hand-smooth indentations notched in the wood grips. In his right hand, he gripped a horse quirt that was weighted with a lead ball sewn inside the bottom of the deer-hide handle. She done dropped it, huh? he said. That's keenly observant of you, Clay, seeing as how the woman's belly is flat as a busted pig's bladder, Rufus Atkins replied. Mars Jameson says find both of them. He means find both of them, Rufus, the man named Clay said, looking back into the trees at the blood spots in the snow. Rufus Atkins squatted down and ignored his companion's observation, his eyes wandering over Sari's face. They say you filed your teeth into points because there's an African king back there in your bloodline somewhere. Bet you gave birth to man-child in you, Sari. My child and me gonna be free. Ain't your business no more, Moss Rufus, she replied. Might as well face it, Sabri. That baby is not going to grow up round here, not with Moss Jameson's face on it. He'll ship it off somewhere he doesn't have to study on the trouble that big dick of his gets him into. Tell us where the baby is and maybe you and it will get sold off together. When she didn't reply to his lie, he fitted his hand under her arm and began to lift her to her feet. 
She seized his wrist and sunk her teeth into his hand, biting down with her incisors into sinew and vein and bone. Seeing his head pitch back, hearing the squeal rise from his throat, and she flung his hand away from her and spat his blood out of her mouth. He staggered to his feet, gripping the back of his wounded hand. You nigger bitch. He ripped the quirt from his friend's grasp and struck her across the face with it. Then, as though his anger were insatiable and fed upon itself, he inverted the quirt in his hand and whipped the leaded end down on her head and neck and shoulders again and again. He threw the quirt to the ground, squeezing his wounded hand again and making a grinding sound with his teeth. Damn, I think she went to the bone. Rufus? The blonde man named Clay said. What? He answered irritably. I think he just beat her brains out. Rufus Atkins stared down at Sari's slumped posture, the hanging jaw, the sightless eyes. You just cost Marsh Jameson six hundred dollars. You flat put us in it, Ruth, Clay said. Rufus cupped his mouth in hand and thought for a minute. He turned and looked at the third member of their party, a rodent-faced man in a buttoned green wool coat and slouch hat strung with a turkey feather. He had sores on his face that never healed, breath that stunk of decaying teeth and no work history other than riding with the paddy rollers, a ubiquitous crew of drunkards and white trash who worked as police for plantation interest and terrorized Negroes on the roads at night. Rufus turned toward the third man. Come on up here, Jackson, and give us your opinion on something. The third man approached them, the wind twirling the turkey feather on his hat brim. Rufus slipped the flintlock pistol from Clay's side holster, cocked it, and fired a chunk of lead the size of a walnut into the side of Jackson's head. The report echoed across the water against the bluffs on the far side. Good God, you done lost your mind, Clay said. Sayre killed Jackson, Clay. That's the story you take to the grave. Nigger who kills a white man isn't worth six hundred dollars. Nigger who kills a white man buys the scaffold. That's Louisiana law, he said. After she was told of her daughter's death and the baby who had been abandoned somewhere deep in the woods, Sayre's mother left her job in the wash house without permission and went to the site where her daughter had died. She followed the blood trail back to the slough and watched the water coursing southward toward the river and knew which direction Sayre had been going when she had finally been forced to stop and give birth to a child. It had been north, toward the river called the Ohio. Sari's mother and a wet nurse with breasts that hung inside her shirt like swollen eggplants walked along the banks of the slough until late afternoon. They rounded a bend in the woods, then saw footprints leading up to a leafy bower and a lean-to whose opening was covered with a bright green branch from a slash pine. The child lay wrapped in a blanket like a caterpillar inside a cocoon, the eyes shut, the mouth puckered. Sayre's mother unwrapped the child from the blanket and wiped it clean with a cloth, then handed it to the wet nurse who held the baby's mouth to her breast and covered it with her coat. Sayre wanted a man-child, but this little girl beautiful, the wet nurse said. She gonna be my darling thing, too. Sayre gonna live inside her. 
her name gonna be Spring. No, that ain't right. Her name gonna be Flower, Sayri's mother said. In the spring of 1861, Willie Burke's dreams took him to a place he had never been and to an event he had not experienced. He saw himself on a dusty Texas road south of Goliad, where the wind was blowing in the trees and there was a hint of salt water or distant rain in the air. The soldiers around him were glad of heart, their backs strung with blanket rolls and haversacks, some of them singing in celebration of their impending freedom and passage aboard a parole ship to New Orleans. Then their Mexican warders began forming up into squads, positioning themselves on one side of the road only, the hammers to the heavy muskets collectively cocking into place. Them sons of bitches are gonna shoot us. Run for it, boys, a Texas soldier shouted. Fuego, a Mexican officer shouted. The musket fire was almost point-blank. In the dream, Willie smelled the bodies of the men piled on top of him, the dried sweat in their clothes, the blood that seeped from their wounds. Then he heard a woman, a prostitute, running from one officer to the next, begging mercy for the wounded. The musket fire dissipated, and Willie got to his feet and ran for the tree line. Not a survivor, but instead cursed with an abiding sense of shame and guilt that he had lived, fleeing through woods while the screams of his comrades filled his ears. When Willie woke from the dream in a back room of his mother's boarding house on Bayou Tesh, he knew the fear that beat in his heart had nothing to do with his dead father's tale of his own survival at the Goliad massacre during the Texas Revolution. The war he feared was now only the stuff of rumors, political posturing, and young men talking loudly of it in a saloon, but he had no doubt it was coming. And as surely as he had wakened to birdsong in his mother's house that morning, he would be in it. He washed his face in a bowl on the dresser and threw the water out the window onto the grassy yard that sloped down to the bayou. By the drawbridge, a gleaming white paddle-wheeler, its twin stacks leaking smoke into the mist, was being loaded with barrels of molasses by a dozen Negro men. They were called wage slaves, rented out by their owner, in this case Ira Jameson, on an hourly basis. The taskmaster, a man named Rufus Atkins, rented a room at the boarding house and worked the Negroes in his charge unmercifully. Willie walked out into the misty softness of the morning and tried to occupy his mind with better things than the likes of Rufus Atkins. But when he sat on a hole in the privy and heard Rufus Atkins driving and berating his charges, he wondered if there might be an exemption in heaven for the Negro who raked a cane knife across Atkins' throat. When Willie walked back up the slope and encountered Atkins on his way into breakfast, he touched his straw hat, fabricated a smile, and said, Top of the morning to you, sir. And to you, Mr. Willie, Rufus Atkins replied. And then Willie's nemesis, his inability to keep his own counsel, caught up with him. If words could flay, I bet you could take the hide off a of fellow, Mr. Atkins, he said. 
That's right clever of you, Mr. Willie. I'm sure you must entertain your mother at great length while tidying the house and carrying out slop jars for her. Tell me, sir, since you're in a mood for profaning a fine morning, would you be liking your nose broken as well? Willie inquired. When he came into the house, his mother said nothing to him, even though she had heard his remarks to Rufus Atkins through the window. But just before noon, she found him in his reading place under a live oak by the bayou and pulled up a cane chair next to him and sat down with her palms propped on her knees. Ellen Lee had thick round pink arms and brown hair that was turning gray and a small Irish mouth and a cleft in her chin. What ails you, Willie? I was just a little out of sorts, he replied. You've decided, haven't you? she said. What might that be? Oh, Willie, you're signing up for the army. This isn't our war, she said. What should I do, stay home while others die? She looked emptily at the bayou, knowing her exhortations were of little value. I need you to fix the roof. What are your plans for today? she asked. To take my clothes to Ira Jameson's laundry. And get in trouble with that black girl. Willie, tell me I haven't raised a lunatic for a son, she said. Willie put a notebook with lined pages, a pencil, and a small collection of William Blake's poems in his pants pockets and rode his horse down Main Street. The town had been laid out along the serpentine contours of Bayou Teche, which took its name from an Atakapa Indian word that meant snake. The business district stretched from a brick warehouse on the bend down to the shadows, a two-story pillared plantation home surrounded by live oaks whose shade was so deep the night-blooming flowers in the gardens often opened in the late afternoon. On the street between the two buildings, shopkeepers swept the plank walks under their colonnades. A constable spaded up horse dung and tossed it into the back of a wagon, and a dozen or so soldiers from Camp Pratt out by Spanish Lake sat in the shade between two brick buildings still drunk from the night before. Actually, the word soldier didn't quite describe them, Willie thought. They had been mustered in as state militia, most of them outfitted in mismatched uniforms paid for by three or four secessionist fanatics who owned cotton interests in the Red River parishes. The most ardent of these was Ira Jameson. His original farm, named Angola Plantation because of the geographical origins of its slaves, had expanded itself in ancillary fashion from the hilly brush country on a bend of the Mississippi.